with fasting, you're giving your bodies, you know, whatever, 16, 20 hours a day to just like rest and then kind of like look inward on itself and then find, you know, dysfunctional cell components and break those down and recycle them. And that, that's really what autophagy is. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gail Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Insight Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Krista Verity. Dr. Verity is a professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Her research focuses on the efficacy of intermittent fasting for weight loss and metabolic disease reduction in people with obesity. Her work is funded by the NIH, American Heart Association, International Life Sciences Institute, and the University of Illinois. She's published over 100 publications on the topic and is also the co-author of the book, The Every Other Day Diet. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. So Krista, it's a, it's a great pleasure to have you and specifically to have someone that's doing a caloric restriction in human. Uh, because we, we had a lot of guests that done it in mice and yeast and worms and other organisms. But uh, at the end of the day, all of us worried about ourselves and want to know whether caloric restriction is working for us. So it will be, a, for in my opinion, a very interesting discussion. But I would like to start with your uh, background a bit and uh, ask you a question about what drove you to become a scientist and specifically what drove you to study caloric restriction in humans? Um, in all honesty, I, I started out, um, I was doing a PhD in um, kind of like cholesterol metabolism, looking at more like lipid metrics, that type of thing. And this is, this might sound bad, but the reason I, I really wanted to go into caloric restriction and weight loss studies was because I noticed how easy it was to recruit subjects versus doing things for lipid lowering. <laughs> I, I was running, um, a study at the my my friend who was also a PhD student at McGill at the time. We we're both recruiting at the same time, and I noticed she was in one room across the hall. I was here, and the phone like never rang because I was looking at kind of um, just natural ways of lowering cholesterol with plant sterols and exercise. And you know nobody wanted to be a part of it. But then her calorie restriction weight loss study had like the phones ringing off the hooks. So I was like, I've got you know. I, and then I also know that um, obesity, obviously, this is back in the early two thousands. Um, obesity was already becoming a really major problem, and it just seemed like it wasn't gonna stop anytime soon. So I kind of knew that funding would be in that area, and then I started reading more about calorie restriction studies and really got interested in it. So that's kind of how it all started. Awesome. And maybe our first lead-in question is a specific type of, of calorie restriction, um, intermittent fasting. We know that's what a lot of your research is on. So would you, hopefully this is a softball, start us off with an explanation of what intermittent fasting is? Oh, sure. Yeah. And I can kind of... Um... 
describe like how I'm kind of moved from calorie restriction to intermittent fasting. I, um, so I started at, I actually, so I did cholesterol metabolism during my PhD at McGill. And then when I went to UC Berkeley, um, I went there to study calorie restriction, but what I started noticing in the literature and just some of the studies that were going on there, um, that people really had problems adhering to calorie restriction. So adherence would drop off in humans after about two to three months or so. And so I thought, and well, my advisor and I, Mark Hellerstein, started thinking, well, do you really have to diet every day to lose weight? Or can you, you know, is there something we can do where maybe it's more extreme on one day, but can we make this like easier for people somehow? So adherence would be higher. So that's how I got into studying alternate day fasting to begin with. And um, alternate day fasting is when people basically have 500 calories one day, and then they alternate that with a day of like eating whatever they'd like. So it kind of flip flops between that like fast day and feast day. And do you find that one of them is superior in terms of health benefits or higher adherence? Um, so we, we have, we ran like the first long-term study of alternate day fasting. Um, we published our paper in, when was it? 2017 in, in JAMA Internal Medicine. And we found that, I think we were one of the first labs to show that intermittent fasting produces pretty much the same weight loss and health benefits as um, uh, daily calorie restriction. So I wouldn't say, you know, I think if you're sticking to both diets equally, you're going to see the same amount of weight loss just because weight loss is all about reducing like how much energy you've reduced. Um, and then because of the weight loss, that's why people are seeing the benefits. So you see like blood pressure reduction, cholesterol reduction, inflammation, that type of thing. But it's all pretty much like weight loss driven and visceral fat mass loss driven. So I think that's the reason people aren't seeing um, much of a difference. And there's been so many review articles about it at this point. In fact, I think there's like six times more reviews we looked at it than actual studies looking at com like comparing intermittent fasting to calorie restriction. It's just like people just jumped on it. I remember having so much trouble. I published the first review looking at that even before we finished our study, just kind of like thinking about it back in 2009 and nobody wanted to publish it. And now I'm like, oh, wow, there's like a hundred <laughs> papers out there <laughs> looking at that. So um Anyway, yeah, it's been a really interesting. Um, it's been a really interesting adventure studying intermittent fasting for the past fifteen years. Uh, at first, nobody wanted to fund it. People would kind of when I would give talks at conferences, people like a lot of dietitians and doctors would like stand up and leave and be like, "You're giving people eating disorders. You're starving people." And then now, yeah, the general public, you know, in a lot of different countries around the world have really embraced this this way of eating because they're looking at health benefits. And I, I think that's just in view of, you know, the the, the epidemic of uh, the obesity epidemic. So people are realizing that it might work for some people. So I have a lot of uh, follow-up questions. It's, uh, it's, again, it's a fascinating uh, subject. So maybe the first one is, if uh, someone would like to start and uh, uh, do caloric restriction or intermittent fasting, what would you recommend to him or her? What is easier? Or is it a, a specific one that is better for a specific gender? Or is it a specific one that's better for a specific age? Or can you a bit elaborate about that? What, what should a, a user that would like to start doing it, what should he consider in order to start doing it? 
Oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do have to say right off the bat, we we don't know. So the the main thing that I've learned from studying kind of like different weight loss diets over the past while is that different things work for different people. Intermittent fasting isn't better than calorie restriction in general, but certain people I think are just naturally better at calorie restriction. Maybe they're better at like tracking things. Uh, They just enjoy doing that better. And then other people like intermittent fasting because maybe they're not like frequent snackers or maybe they're, if they do time-restricted eating where you eat within a certain window each day, maybe if they just find it really easy to stop eating after dinner or whatever it is. So as someone that I don't have I don't have an RD, but I train dietitians and I have like all the education. I just didn't do my internship. Um, I'd say, yeah, different things work for different people, and people just need to try out what what will work for them. And really, people just need to find what fits best into their lifestyles. That's the most important thing. They need to find whatever it is that they can stick to long term. Um, and not try to force a certain eating pattern on themselves, but do something that's already similar to what they're doing, I think. Um, and then in terms of like what, what, yeah, what is best for certain people, we don't know yet. I think that's just um, something that we're just starting to study now. So we'll do like a sub-analysis to see who can stick to intermittent fasting better. Um, and we find that actually old, postmenopausal women tend to stick to diets much better than premenopausal women. Um, but I think that goes for pretty much everything just because they, they tend to be just from questionnaires, they say that they're a little less busy. So postmenopausal women tend to not have like children at home, which is, you know, very time consuming. Uh, they have more time, maybe a bit more money too to spend on themselves. And, um, and another thing is that they've already tried a bunch of different diets. So maybe, you know, at this point they know what works for them. So that, that's one major thing that we've seen. Um, adherence definitely increases with age. Our older subjects are very good at sticking to, I'd say, both calorie restriction and intermittent fasting. Great, thank you. So the next question is uh, uh, maybe to pinpoint the benefits of uh, uh, intermittent fasting or caloric restriction. So you mentioned that uh, you lose weight, and then you mentioned maybe lower uh, lipids and uh, blood pressure. Can you uh, uh, zoom in into that a bit? And uh, uh, I think that that's something that it's again very interesting for our audience to know. Okay, I'm I'm spending the time. I'm uh, making the commitment. What should I expect to receive? Uh, so if if you can stick to it, basically, again, you basically create an energy deficit, which results in weight loss. I, I don't believe that there's anything like magical about intermittent fasting. Like I know people talk about ketones and autophagy and all this stuff. I, we're not really, I don't, I'm not a mechanistic researcher to also put that out there. I look at like clinical outcomes um, and I run clinical trials. But I think it's all just energy deficit and then people end up losing anywhere between, well, anywhere between like zero to 10% of their weight. Um, People that stick to it more lose more like five to 10% of weight. And you really do need to lose at minimum 5% of your body weight to see any of those clinical benefits. So that, that's one thing that we're definitely noticing. If people kind of don't lose that amount of weight, they, they see very little change. Um, the other thing we're noticing is that people that have much higher baseline measurements of like blood pressure, cholesterol, those people are the ones that tend to be the responders as well. So if you, you know, for your audience, if there's someone out there that's lost five to 10% of weight and they're not seeing many 
you know, great reductions. It's probably because they're already in a healthy range for, for blood pressure and cholesterol levels. So those are, those are some of the main things we see, but, um, in terms of like percentages, we see, um, it's about anywhere from like five to, well, let me put it more like this for blood pressure. It's between like five to 15 milligrams, uh, milliliter milli, well points millimeters of mercury for blood pressure um and then we also see for cholesterol anywhere for for ldl anywhere from like 10 to 35 percent reductions when someone's hypercholesterolemic and then the other thing that changes a lot is um triglycerides so within the same range about 10 to 40 percent for triglycerides and very little effect on hdl cholesterol which is the um basically the good cholesterol that, that tends to raise, but more so with exercise than anything else. Any effect that you've seen on the uh, fasting blood glucose or you, you don't see any effect on that? Uh, we see nothing on blood glucose, but we do see pretty dramatic reductions in fasting insulin and insulin resistance and then increases in insulin sensitivity. Um, we're running the first study right now in time-restricted eating. So I really started an alternate day fasting um, and then noticed that people don't really – Americans aren't really into it, I have to say. they um, It's just too hard, honestly. I, I thought it wasn't, but uh, 500 calories every other day is not – not yeah, not something everybody wants to do. But time restricted eating, where people eat within about an eight hour window or so, seems to be very well. It's very popular right now in the U.S. So we're running a lot of studies in that domain. Um, we're just finishing up the first long, like twelve month study of time restricted eating versus calorie restriction. Um, hopefully, we'll publish that in the fall. Uh, and then we're also running a study in people with type 2 diabetes, looking at um, an eight-hour window versus calorie restriction. And then we just want to see if it can help lower A1C and medication use in people with diabetes and maybe even help with remission. So so a couple of more questions, and sorry about all the questions that I have. It's, it's really fascinating. Oh, no. Um, oh, the, the first one is uh, the effect on the physiology. So do you see any effect on a resting heart rate or a sleep quality? Um, so resting heart rate, we have seen reductions, but again, it's usually when people have higher resting heart rate. So normal is around 72 in our subjects at around 75 or 76, it will go down by about four points. So we have seen that, um, not consistently, but, but we have definitely seen that. And then, um, sorry, what was the other one? Heart rate sleep, and sleep, sleep quality. Uh, sleep quality, we've only measured it so far using questionnaires and we haven't seen much of a change, but I do have to say most of the subjects in our studies have been fairly healthy sleepers at, at baseline. So, um, we haven't had many people with sleep apnea or just kind of, we use like the Pittsburgh, um, sleep quality index to measure that. So we haven't seen much of a change there, but I believe that, um, uh, Blondine Leferrere at uh, Columbia is running like a really comprehensive time-restricted eating sleep study right now. So I think that will answer a lot of those questions because I think she's putting like Acti watches and, you know, all the kind of like fancier monitors on people to see, to see if it really does help. Okay. The, the next question is about the uh, feeding uh, uh, time. 
So uh, as you said, it's usually 18 uh, uh, or uh, uh, 16, 8 or uh, 18, yeah. 6. The question is if someone uh, decided to eat only two hours a day, or I don't know if you've done it or anyone else done it, but uh, is there a, a, an additional benefit if you cut the feeding time to only two hours or one hour or four hours? Yeah. Um, so we have done four hours. So we've done four hours, six hours and eight hours. Um, our, we compared four versus six hours and we published that paper. When was it? I think 2020 in cell metabolism. If, um, if anyone's interested in reading it and we did find, well, we found no difference between four to six hours. Um, people ended up cutting out by eating within a four to six hour window. People cut out about 550 calories per day. Whereas if people do the more typical like eight hours, they end up only cutting out around 300 calories per day. So I think over the long term, um, people would lose more weight with the shorter windows. I just think they're a little hard to stick to. We That study was only like two months, like the four hour one. Um, but at the same time, I know that it's like really popular in uh, – uh, Silicon Valley, there's a lot of people, you know, following that a lot of like kind of tech, tech people <laughs> that are really into these very short eating windows, like one meal a day. And it seems like a lot of those people can stick to it. And, and they're kind of reaping health benefits. And they say they can concentrate more. So, you know, maybe it's something for again, for certain people. All right, next one, let's you mentioned lipids. And it's great that, you know, that was your original area of focus. Um, for the beneficial effects on lipid markers like LDL that you see, is it without weight loss, do you still see those benefits or is it mostly driven by weight loss? Um, we, we have not seen any benefits. Like we, we also usually run a control group that, that loses no weight and kind of just does their usual diet and exercise. Um, but I believe Courtney Peterson ran a really nice study looking at like a six hour time restricted eating window that was also published in cell metabolism a couple of years ago. And she had her subjects, excuse me, maintain their weight. And I believe, I don't think anything happened with lipids, but I think she saw really pretty nice increases in like insulin sensitivity. But that may have been more related to the timing of the eating window. So right now with um, time-restricted eating, the, the, big, the big questions are like, how long should the window be? Um, and then where should you place the window in the day? So a lot of people kind of gravitate towards eight hours. Um, I think they just find it easiest. And then also that ends up cutting out again around 300 calories. Um, but a big question is, so you, should you start, you know, should you place that eight hour window starting at like 8 a.m. or 12 p.m.? I find most Americans choose 12 to 8 p.m. We've just run surveys and whenever I just talk to the general public, most people do an eight hour window, 12 to 8 but I do think it is healthier for people to place the window earlier in the sense that our bodies are a lot more insulin sensitive earlier in the day. So as our body, as the day goes on, our ability to like process nutrients just kind of gets worse. So if you, you know, load up your calories earlier in the day, it's better. And that's been associated with like better increases in insulin sensitivity um, and better decreases in like fasting insulin, et cetera. But at the same time, I don't think anyone's going to do that because if you have, if you start eating at 8 a.m., that means you have to stop at 4 p.m., which means that you can't like eat with your family every night. So, you know, I, I could talk forever about this, but I, I actually don't really agree with a lot of the animal studies in this area because the things, you know, 
what they're having the animals do is, yeah, a lot of the time it's like early eating windows. And then also the thing that they're not like accounting for, and this is why I think a lot of the animal studies don't really translate to what we're seeing in humans is because the animals are like perfectly adherent because they have no choice. (laughs) Whereas humans, you know, and like I've run a lot of like year long trials at this point and people stop adhering by about two to three months. So adherence drops to like mm, probably like 50 to 60% by month six. And then you're lucky if 40% of people are still doing whatever you're telling them to do by 12 months. So with the animal studies, you're seeing all these like beautiful, you know, whatever, everything's just amazing (laughs) because, you know, that animal had no choice. It was like the best subject ever. Um, But yeah, we're not, we're not seeing that in humans. So I think there's a lot of backlash now when we publish studies showing that very little has changed or just like minor decreases in blood pressure uh, or just, you know, small things here and there. And people are like, well, that doesn't make sense because that's not what like Sachin Panda's saying or like all these people that study, you know, and they're great researchers. It's not that, but it's just that what happens in a mouse is not what's happening in humans. Also, if you're fasting a mouse for 16 hours, like that's probably like fasting a human for like a week, you know, it's just like, how do we even like, I think their ketones shoot up like pretty quickly. So it's just, I just don't think they're very good models at this point. Like, you know, for mechanistic stuff, sure. You know, you can't get access to like a human's liver very easily for liver biopsies. So that stuff, our brains, et cetera. Like, I think that's great. But I think when we're talking about general metabolic outcomes, we can't be looking at animal data anymore. There's a lot of human data coming out and it's very, very different from what we're seeing in animals. So, yeah. So it's interesting that you mentioned the difference between the human data and the animal data. And one of the uh, outcome that they see in animal data is uh, autophagy. And uh, a lot of uh, excitement and uh, buzz today is uh, connected to autophagy. And as much as I understood from your research, uh, you haven't seen that. But uh, can you uh, describe a bit uh, what do you see about uh, this subject? Yeah. So the first thing I always want to point out is that we we actually can't measure autophagy in humans yet. So there's no way to measure it. Um, people, when it is measured, it's just like surrogate markers looking at gene expression, like genes involved in it. But we can measure it in rodents. And most of the studies looking at autophagy with calorie restriction or fasting is like in yeast and worms. And I think there's a few studies in rodents. Um, so we, to my knowledge, they haven't really seen any changes in autophagy in humans, like just looking at gene expression. Um, but definitely in yeast and worms, I think there was like a Nobel Prize winning study a couple of years ago um, where they did see really dramatic increases in autophagy after kind of short term fasting. Um, but I, yeah, I, I don't feel comfortable really saying if that translates to humans because I, I really don't know. And I don't think we have that, any evidence to show that just yet. Um, I think it makes sense that it does, you know, like when our bodies, I think the beautiful thing about fasting is that it really, the whole point of it is to give your body a break. So we're constantly bombarding our bodies with nutrients and food, and then our body has to work to process the nutrients and store it and put it away or excrete it. But with fasting, you're giving your bodies, you know, whatever, 16, 20 hours a day to just like rest and then kind of like look inward on itself and then find, you know, dysfunctional cell components and break those down and recycle them. And that that's really what autophagy is. So yeah, I think I'm sure it is happening. We just haven't, you know, I, it just hasn't been measured in humans yet. 
I think those are important points for the masses just to remember that because it happened in yeast does not mean it is the same in humans. I feel like I'm just constantly inundated with studies of look what happened here. I'm like, that's not a person. I know, I know. We we just published um, a paper looking at the effect of um, intermittent fasting on reproductive hormones because there's a lot of questions about um, fasting, like kind of messing up fertility or, you know, ju- just concerns about that, which makes sense. Um, and everyone is always quoting this one study in, in rats. And um, I, you know, I saw the study when it came out, whatever, five years ago, but I was like, oh, these are like three-month-year-old rats, three-month Uh, old rats, which is equivalent to like a nine-year-old female. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) of course, if you have a nine-year-old female doing like really extreme fasting, yes, that will mess up puberty. Like, so people, I don't know, I think people just like get whatever it is from a study and then just run with it. And then, you know, it's immediately all over like Reddit and everything. But basically, you know, what, what happens with fasting is what you'd expect. People eat less, so they lose weight. And then if they have high levels of blood pressure or whatever, that stuff will go down with weight loss. But nothing, yeah, nothing too surprising. But for me, I think the beauty of it is that it's a different option for people. People that don't want to do daily calorie restriction, there's something else that just involves like watching the clock instead of like writing stuff down in a food record or my fitness pal or something. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully it can, it will help people. Yeah. And to piggyback off of your, that paper you just mentioned for reproductive hormones, um, I don't, can you give us a quick summary on that? I think that's a really big oh, yeah. interesting topic for a lot of people too. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we um, were just about to publish it in Nutrients. I just got like the proofs today. So it should come out, I think, in the next week or two. Um, so what we found, and there's not many studies, so we we only took studies that were either in males or females, um, nothing that combined them just because we, you know, obviously hormones are pretty different in males and females. Um, and what we found is that in, again, I have to say the caveat of this is that there's like four studies in men and maybe like three studies in women. So we're not dealing with like a lot of, a lot of data, but it, it does tend to decrease androgens and androgens are like testosterone, um, D D H E S that, that type of thing. So, and this was noted by, um, I think pretty early on, maybe like 10 years ago, even by Grant Tinsley's group, he studies a lot of, um, time restricted eating in athletes. And one thing that he was consistently noticing in for when he was testing out hormones is that testosterone did go down, um, with just a bit, I think it was by like 10 or 15% or so. And then, but interestingly, it didn't affect muscle mass or strength because these were like resistance trained athletes. So they ended up losing, um, a bit of fat mass, maintaining their lean mass, um, but seeing these kind of minor decreases in testosterone. So we noticed that in pretty much every single study. And then in women, it it, ha- it also decreases androgens a little bit. Um, so we our conclusion was that, oh, it might actually be really good for women that have hyperandrogenism. Is that how you say it? Yeah. I've only ever, it's funny. It's just, it's a word that I've only ever written. I'm like, yeah, I guess that's how you say it. Hyperandrogenism. Uh, when, so women with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome have higher levels of testosterone. So, um, I think our next big study will be to see if time restricted eating can actually help kind of modify the, the hormones to get the, that to get testosterone to go down. And then this other, 
a major hormone called sex hormone binding globulin, which is like a carrier of testosterone to increase. And when you level those out, it really helps with all the kind of like symptoms and clinical features of PCOS. Yeah, oh, sorry, Ashley. We said the same thing. <laughs> uh, What's that? Sorry. Gil and I just said the same thing at the same time. We've been doing a lot of these. <laughs> <laughs> um, on muscle loss, is there a best strategy to like avoid muscle loss if you're trying to maintain muscle while also doing intermittent fasting? Or is, is it being resistance trained in general is the best protection kind of against it? Oh, yeah, that's another great question. Um, so yeah, basically, when someone loses weight with either intermittent fasting or calorie restriction, 75% of that weight loss, so just basically with like most dieting, 75% of that weight loss is fat mass and about 25% is lean mass. So we and then it's the same for both of those. But the way to kind of maintain lean mass is um, by resistance training, and then also consuming a higher protein diet has been shown in some studies too to help to help maintain lean mass. But you know, your, your body is literally getting smaller. So it makes sense that all of it is kind of getting smaller together. Um, that's kind of what I like to tell people because people obviously get pretty freaked out, uh, particularly our older participants about losing lean mass. Um, one of the big questions though, is that is intermittent fasting safe in people over like 65 or 70, just because lean mass tends to go down a lot. Um, after like after about 65 or 70. So we don't want to exacerbate that. Um, but I don't, there's not many studies looking at kind of older populations yet. So we don't really know if it's safe for, for that group of people. Sure. So speaking about older people or maybe longevity, which is my uh, uh, most exciting subject, um, I'm coming from a lab that uh, researched the serotonin uh, family of uh, diacetylizers. And there is a lot of buzz about uh, caloric restriction and uh, serotonin and also NAD level because NAD is the activator of serotonin. Do you have any data about it in human? And if yes, what, what the data showing? I, so that I, I don't really study. I, I know what, what it is um, just because I've, I've read about sirtuins, but I actually, I don't, I don't know much about it. Sorry. I, I do know that like the rhesus monkey study, again, I look, I focus more on like clinical features. Um, and it was the one that I was really waiting for just cause we don't have, I guess this is a longevity podcast. So you probably talk about this all the time, but we don't have any actual like trials showing that calorie restriction can increase lifespan in humans. Um, there's the studies, well, you know, the calorie restriction society, which is basically people that, um, choose to follow a pretty heavily caloric restricted diet for their lives. So interestingly, it's a lot of men. I'm not sure why, um, kind of like older men and they're naturally, or they're choosing to calorie restrict by, I think it's about 30 to 40%. So that's kind of one of the observational studies. I think Walter Longo is doing, he's following those men and Luigi Fontana is also involved with that. So I guess we'll see. Um, but then there's the rhesus monkey studies that came out of um, the NIH and University of Wisconsin. And it was so interesting because from what I remember, one of them showed that it did work in one group of rhesus monkeys. I think the Wisconsin one, they, they did live like 20% longer. But then I think in the one from NIH, it didn't work. So there's like a lot of confusion about whether or not calorie restriction actually works to extend lifespan. But I guess you, yeah. I guess you guys know all about this. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, is I, that, I is that true? If, 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 yeah, if, uh, yeah, it's definitely true. I think that one of the explanations why it didn't work in a, a, 
in one of the studies is that uh, their baseline diet wasn't uh, the right diet uh, in a way. Oh. And that's what, that's what that's what I understood from that, but it's it's definitely puzzling that uh, it worked in one cohort and it didn't yeah. work in one cohort. But I as remember, uh, sorry, I remember they were started at the same time, and I, I just talked to someone at um, oh, I think it was Wisconsin where it worked, and I was talking to one of the researchers there, and she said that the monkeys actually lived like way longer than they expected. So the grant was only written for a certain amount of years. And they're like, how are we going to feed these monkeys? They're living too long. Like, I just thought that was so interesting. But yeah. so yeah, I think it's got some therapeutic potential for sure. But longevity is such a such a difficult thing to measure, you know, just because you need to like, yeah, you know, if, if they fed the monkeys wrong or whatever at the beginning, like, well, what happened? You know, how do you measure that in humans? Or is it like, you know, since the person was in the womb, or it's just, it's just seems so complicated. Yeah, so, so a lot of, uh, it's, I think that it's a great uh, question, and uh, uh, there are a few uh, ways to do that. Some of them is uh, start uh, older. So as you said, take the 70 or 65 years old males that uh, you mentioned and uh, do a caloric restriction on them, and then uh, you don't need to wait 60 years, hopefully, so you can see the result uh, shorter. Another way is to look at a surrogate marker of uh, longevity, such as uh, LDL, blood pressure, uh, glucose levels. So, so those are a few ways to do that. But I, I would love uh, uh, to discuss a bit, uh, a bit more practical uh, uh, points about uh, uh, the intermittent fasting. And uh, specifically, because you feed yourself for a shorter time, is there a, a specific uh, uh, deficiencies that you might uh, approach? And do you have some recommendation? Do you want, do you need to increase the amount of uh, protein or fat or carbohydrate or any other uh, micronutrient in order to keep your diet in balance? So are you asking like, yeah, is there, is there like an optimal macronutrient balance? Yes. Hey, yeah, that's, that's a great question too. I, I think one of the major things that we're just asking in general is, is it calories or macronutrients? Um, I, I, as much as I want to say I know the answer to that, I really don't think I do. I, I just find, you know, humans naturally gravitate towards kind of very similar to what the guidelines are from like the AHA or the American Diabetes Association, where it's like roughly 30% fat and, um, you know, 50% carbs, 20% protein type of thing. But it's hard to tell if that's what we want to do or if that's just what our, the American diet is. I don't know. Um, it seems like, you know, having studied nutrition for about 20 years now, it's been really fascinating looking at like the different macronutrients being like demonized. Like when I started, like fats were bad. I did my undergrad in like the late 90s and like, like just the mention of like coconuts was like, <laughs> like, and, and they were like coconuts. Like it was just like the worst thing that you could possibly. And now we're just like constantly consuming like coconut oils and stuff like that. But so it was just that trend of like super, super low fat diets, you know, fat was bad. And then it moved on to carbs being bad in the 2000s with Atkins and all that. And then I always, you know, protein always kind of stood out as being like the savior. But now, you know, protein's bad because it might lead to higher heart attack rates or, or whatever, whatever's going on. Um, 
I don't know. I, I think people should just do like, I think people shouldn't focus so much on macros, but as someone like studying nutrition, I'd say, you know, just eat more fruits and vegetables. That seems to have a definite link, have less processed foods and, you know, less meat that red meat in particular seems to be pretty highly associated with like colorectal cancer and heart disease and that type of thing. But I don't know if people should focus so much on macros. I'm just not seeing any convincing evidence for like a 25% you know, protein diet or like the Atkins 20 grams a day of carbs. In fact, a lot of people, it it does seem kind of unhealthy to do that. So I don't know. Yeah. The answer is I really don't know. I, um, I met Kevin Hall, who's um, a researcher at the NIH. He studies all different types of diets and, and, and things like that and does mathematical modeling for weight loss. And I just asked him, I was like, so do you think macros are important? And he's like, well, only in the context of like appetite, Um, And I think both of us agree that, you know, if you're having a really carb-centric or, you know, if you're eating a lot of fat and carbs, then with less protein, that might make you hungrier. So protein does have satiating effects. So maybe that's important for weight management. But um, I don't know. It's a great question. I've done so much reading. And the more reading I do, I just get more and more confused. So, (laughs) yeah, I'm so sorry. I don't have an answer. but That's okay. But I'd say... A good scientist yeah. say, no, I don't know when he doesn't know. So it's it, it's showed that you're a good scientist. And, and another uh, question that we receive uh, very often is about exercising and uh, intermittent fasting. So a lot of people tend to exercise in the morning and they uh, tend to uh, fast until noontime or lunchtime. So uh, is it safe for them to do that or should they eat at the day that they're exercising uh, I don't know, one hour after the exercise, uh, after the beginning of the exercise to maintain the enough energy in their body? Uh, I, I think it's perfectly safe. Like a, a lot of my friends that are runners actually choose to not, they run in the morning and they say that it makes them feel sick or kind of like weighed down if they end up eating before they go for a run. Uh, I think if people are worried, the only real concern would be, um, you know, maybe like glucose levels, hypoglycemia, so they could possibly wear like a glucose monitor um, if, if they're really worried about that. So I'd say, you know, again, do what works for you. I think it is perfectly safe unless you feel like you're going to pass out. Um, and then we actually found in our original, we started combining alternate day fasting with exercise. And what we found was that when people, we let people exercise any time in the day, but we noticed that if they ate their fast day meal, the 500 calories before exercise, they ended up eating another kind of small snack after exercise because people tend to get a bit hungry after exercise, like not right away, but within an hour or so. So they ended up kind of like cheating a little bit and, and having more food on that day than they were supposed to. So it might help you adhere better to wait until after exercise um, with alternate day fasting. But that's that's one of the only things I've really noticed. Interesting. and. You know, you mentioned that postmenopausal women compared to premenopausal tend to stick to intermittent fasting a little bit better. Are there any other characteristics that make some people more successful with intermittent fasting that you found? Uh, I, I definitely find that people that kind of report in questionnaires that they're frequent snackers are, are not very good at alternate day fasting. So mm-hmm. if someone's used to, you know, and some people feel like they need to eat every two to three hours a day, those people tend to not do well, that well with fasting regimens. But other than that, I, I think we just don't have, 
I think to really look at those associations, you need like really large data sets. So we're going to have to start pooling data sets to really figure out who it's working for. But the only thing that's really kind of shining through is that people over the age of 50 just have much better adherence. But again, I, I think it's just time. I think, you know, they have more time to do it. And the flip side of that, are there certain groups of people that should not try intermittent fasting um, that it maybe wouldn't be safe for or wouldn't just in general wouldn't be a good idea for? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I just want to point out too, we just published um, in Nature Reviews a couple months ago, um, like a practical kind of guidelines paper about how to incorporate exercise. And we talk about like macros and all that. And this as well, like contraindications. So what we say in that paper, and that's kind of the general consensus now is that definitely like children shouldn't uh, do intermittent fasting, um, It definitely interfere with their growth. Uh, there's not enough safety data for people over 70, so it's not recommended for them. Um, pregnant women or lactating women, uh, again, no safety data. But um, kind of as an aside, it's really interesting now. You know, it's so hard to do studies in people that are pregnant. It's just, like, unsafe. So IRBs will, like, pretty much not allow it. But what I've noticed in certain friends of mine who are overweight when they start pregnancy and they tend to maybe through like nauseousness or whatever for those that like lose weight during pregnancy. So they actually like end up being at a lower weight, even by nine months, they're, they're doing like much better. Like they don't get gestational diabetes. So I think maybe, you know, right now we're saying not for pregnant women, but maybe if your BMI to start with is like a 35 or something, maybe it would actually be helpful to prevent, you know, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, that type of thing. So, but again, I think a lot of this is because of the safety data, but definitely for children, definitely not in kind of younger children. Awesome. Uh, and I appreciate that. Everything else that you've said of just a person that actually does the science on this, making it realistic because how most of us kind of hear about intermittent fasting is so sensational. Uh, so I appreciate you grounding <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, I know. I always feel like it's, you know, people are like, oh, is it going to extend my life or is it going to do this? I'm like, no, probably not. I'll probably eat less and lose, <laughs> lose a bit of weight. I know. I always I always like to mention that it's not magical, but I definitely get a bit of backlash on that. But, you know, I've, I've been studying it for 15 years. So these are, and we've run like thousands of people through clinical trials, again, mainly to look at like clinical outcomes of like heart disease and diabetes. Um, so like metabolic effects and it works for sure. It definitely works for weight loss. That's one thing I can say. If the per if somebody's sticking to it, it definitely works for weight loss. And then if they lose more than 5% of their weight, they're going to see those metabolic benefits. So, um, so yeah, it's been, you know, it's, it's been a fun, a fun ride, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, definitely. I don't think it does anything different than calorie restriction. And is there personally one decision that you make each day? that can be related to nutrition or calorie restriction or longevity that you can share as, you know, as a tip to our listeners. I feel like you've shared some good nuggets with us so far. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd say since I started studying time restricted eating more and just reading the literature, I've, I've definitely stopped eating like after dinner. So I do try to do the eight hours. Mine's more like 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. or 6.30, like whenever we end up finishing dinner. So I think when I found out and started reading the literature about how much more insulin sensitive we are in the morning compared mm -hmm. to night, that like really freaked me out, honestly. I just felt like anything I was eating past 8 p.m. was just immediately.
quietly, like, I don't know, <laughs> just messing up my body in some way. So I think I got a little paranoid about it. But um, yeah, so I'd say don't eat after dinner and, and see if that helps. Awesome. All right. Well, that is the end of our long list of questions for you. Thanks for letting us pepper you for the past hour or so. Um, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, yeah. No problem at all. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. Thank you. And we look forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the leading scientists. For more information, please go to www.insidetracker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.